The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Lord, we thank you for this morning when we can gather together as believers to have our souls refreshed by your word. For it is your word that is alive and powerful and that is the source of information we need to transform our thinking so that we can have within the innermost part of our soul, the thinking part of our soul, the heart, the content of scripture that we might think the thoughts of Christ, that we might, having the mind of Christ in us, think your thoughts after you. Therefore, live a life that honors and glorifies you because we think as you would have us to think. Now, Father, as we look at your word this morning, we pray that the Holy Spirit who indwells us and teaches us would be making this clear to us and that we would be responsive. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Never fails, it seems. I guess it's just part of the angelic conflict that when I have a Sunday morning, when I have some things of significance that, at least that I think are significant, that the night before I don't sleep very well. I woke up at 3 o'clock, never to go back to sleep again until 6.30. Normally I'm up at 5 o'clock on a Sunday morning, but I was wiped out this morning. So I hope concentration somehow is restored so that I can get through it. Those of you who don't stay for the second hour, that's when the hot stuff comes. This morning, I think, in the second hour, I'm going to talk about one of the most controversial subjects I ever talk about. So I'll just leave it at that, just a little just a little commercial teaser for the second service. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. We're down to verse 6, and in order to, or verse 4 rather, and in order to make sure we retain the context, I want to read these first seven verses again so we know what we're studying. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now, the key word in this whole section, I have taught some, especially on Wednesday night, that every passage has, a, has certain key phrases or key words which are the interpretive key for the entire section. And the key word here is the Greek word huiathesion. looks like this in the Greek. That's in the English, you have a rough breathing mark before the upsilon uh, there, which is transliterated as an H. H-U-I-O-T-H-E-S-I-A-N. And is translated correctly adoption. But the notion of adoption, the idea of adoption that is in this passage, is not the idea of adoption that we're used to in our culture. In our culture, we look on adoption as taking a child and making him a part of the family whereas the focus in the ancient world and the Roman world had more to do with recognition of adulthood and it, the bestowal of legal rights and inheritance rights upon a son when he was recognized as an adult, usually at the age of 14. And we have spent a good bit of time studying the Roman system of adoption that from birth until age 14, the son was like a slave, and he was under a slave that was called a pedagogue or pedagogues. And the uh, role of that slave was not only to take the son to and from school classes, but also uh, to accompany him wherever he went, primarily to keep him out of trouble and to teach him discipline. The son was under the complete authority of the slave, and in that sense was under a slave. At the time the child became 14, 
It was a ceremony held at which time the father took his his uh, robe off. The robe of childhood was removed from his shoulders, and he placed a white robe, uh, which was a white robe, and, and then he placed a white robe that was trimmed in purple or crimson upon his shoulders, and that was called the toga virilis, the toga of manhood. And at that point, he had all the rights and responsibilities that came to any adult. He could take a wife. He could serve in the military. He could serve in the Senate. He could vote. In other words, he had all the privileges and responsibilities of an adult. That is the concept that underlies this analogy that runs from approximately uh, 323 down through verse 7, the analogy of adoption. Now, the analogy that Paul is making is that is a historical analogy. He's not making a comparison between unbeliever and believer, but between Jew and Gentile. And he's looking at the history of humanity in terms of the history of salvation, how God has revealed salvation through history. Remember, he didn't just dump the whole load on Adam and Eve when they came out of the garden. Uh, he told, they had, were aware of some information, probably a lot more than we have record of. Uh, Abraham, again, was given more information. Moses was given more information. The prophets were given more information. This is called progressive revelation. And each, each era, each generation was responsible for the amount of revelation that had been given uh, to them. But from Adam and the fall up to the cross, this would be the age of the Gentiles, from Adam to Noah, I mean Adam to, to uh, Abraham, and from Abraham to the cross is the age of Israel, the dispensation of Israel. And Paul is looking on this as, in a sense, the childhood of the human race, the childhood of Israel, and Israel is under the law, and the law is analogous to a pedagogue, the pedagogues. Write that in English, the pedagogue. Now, what Paul is saying is that just as in the analogy in Roman adoption that the pedagogue had a temporary role and a temporary function, so too did the law by its very nature. And once the human race reaches adulthood, i.e., when Jesus Christ comes in the incarnation and redemption, that the pedagogue no longer has a function. And so Israel would no longer be under the pedagogue. He loses his job. And so not only is Israel no longer under the law, but Gentiles who never were under the law are not to be required to come in under the law. That's the problem that the Gentile, that the Gentile believers in Galatia are facing. That is the problem, of, the problem of Judaizers coming in and saying that they needed to come under the law for not only for salvation but also for sanctification. In chapter, in verse, chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, we see the analogy of adoption. In verse 3, there is the reflection upon the bondage of Israel. So also we, that is Israel, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. And then we have a conjunction of contrast in verse 4 to contrast this historical era of Israel in bondage under the law with what takes place at the Incarnation. Two key doctrines are covered here, the Incarnation and redemption. We need to spend a little time this morning covering those doctrines. But when, particle of time, when the fullness of time of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. The principle here is that Jesus Christ controls history. God determined when the best time in all of human history would be, the most propitious time to send the Savior. And I want to go spend some, some time looking at the historical situation of just why this is the fullness of times. Several things are going on here, uh, but first of all, let's look at the Roman background. Remember what we have throughout the ancient world at this time is, is it is the time of the Roman Empire. Specifically, at the birth of Christ, Augustus is Caesar of Rome. Prior to the Roman Empire, you had the existence of the Greek Empire under Alexander the Great. 
Furthermore, the center point of action, the center stage for the drama of the life of Christ is Jerusalem and Israel. So all three play a major role in understanding what the text means by the fullness of time. So we'll start by looking at the Roman background. The the Romans were pagan and ignorant of God. They were practitioners of idolatry, the mystery religions, and emperor worship. They were used by God in a phenomenal way to prepare the way for the Savior. First of all, we'll look under this, under the seven different points under Roman background. First point, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, literally. Now, if you'd been here last Sunday when I started this, if you had watched Jeopardy on Thursday night, you would have gotten this question right. Somebody was watching Jeopardy this week. Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, encouraged the free exchange of goods and ideas. Because of the military strength of Rome, they had conquered all around the Mediterranean. They had brought into, brought under their control all the pirates out on the Mediterranean, and they had brought peace to the those traveling from one country to another. This was a time of unprecedented peace in the Mediterranean world, as all were brought under the iron fist of Rome. Therefore, it enabled the free exchange of goods and ideas all throughout the Mediterranean world, and because there were basically two languages used by all, Latin and Greek, that became the language of commerce, that people were able to communicate with one another, whether they were from Egypt in North Africa, whether they were from Syria, uh, what we now know as Turkey, which the Romans referred to as Asia Minor, uh, Greece, Rome, Spain, Gaul, all could communicate in either Latin or, or Greek, so that there was this unprecedented peace and an unprecedented exchange of ideas and goods throughout the empire. Secondly, because of the Pax Romana, there was a system of roads built throughout the empire which made communication easier and quicker and made it easier to transport goods from the uh, uh, North Africa to the, to the Middle East back over to Europe. Third, was the Roman policy in the army to use provincials. In the old uh, Republic, they, uh, at the very early years, the only Romans could serve in the army. But as the empire expanded and they conquered more countries, they made it a policy to use the provincials in the army in order to assimilate them into the empire. And this facilitated the spread of ideas throughout the empire. It began to develop more of a, not that it was a homogenous society, because it wasn't, but it developed more of a homogenous society because as different people from different nations and different backgrounds came together in the army, there was more of an exchange of ideas. So that later, after Christ came and with the birth of Christianity within the army itself, you had people from different portions of the empire, some of whom were Christians, who could then evangelize and communicate the gospel cross-culturally within the framework of the military. So the third point is that by using provincials in the Roman army, the spread of ideas was facilitated as they came in contact with one another from different portions, parts, and areas of the empire. Fourth, there was a a relative indifference to new religions within the empire. Christianity, because of emperor worship, Christianity was considered illegal until 313 A.D. when Constantine, the emperor at that time, became a a Christian at least made a profession of faith when he saw a cross in the sky, had a vision of a cross in the sky and the statement, by this sign you will conquer before the battle of Milvan Bridge in which he was victorious. And at that point he became a Christian nominally and mandated that all of his leaders become Christians. He legalized Christianity and made everything else illegal. So the question at that point is whether that has any validity, but that's a different subject. Up until then, Christianity was considered illegal, but there were only two or three empire-wide persecutions. The image you get from Hollywood and the popular conception is that, that all throughout this 200 years, 
the Christians were being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum in Rome, and that only happened on a few occasions and at a few times. There were sporadic regional persecutions, but they were generally sporadic, and they did not have the intensity that the, uh, some of the later empire-wide persecutions had. Fifth, there was an increasing cosmopolitan attitude in, in the empire which favored the growth of Christianity. Sixth, as a result of military defeat, as Rome expanded and they defeated people in, in Greece, they defeated people in Asia Minor and defeated people in Syria and various other areas, those people lost faith in their various traditional gods and pantheons because obviously their gods weren't strong enough to protect them from the gods of the Romans. So if my god's not, not as strong as the gods of the Romans, well, I'm not going to believe in that guy anymore or in this religion anymore. So people lost faith in their traditional religions, and that cast them adrift spiritually. So they began to look for other answers. How can we have hope? So there was a sense of being... Uh, many people being uh, cast spiritually adrift in the empire because of that. So people were ready for something new. Seventh, there was, within the Roman Empire, there developed a sense of the unity of the human race operating under a universal law. This is a first in human history. The Roman Empire elevated the concept of, of law and the rule of law. Not necessarily in the sense that we think of that, but much more so than anything that had happened in any empire previously in human history. And there was a sense of that all of the, all mankind was under that law. They developed this concept gradually from the root of the Twelve Tablets, which was the original law code in the early Republic during the 5th century B.C. As Rome expanded, especially after they conquered uh, the Greeks, they assimilated various ideas from Greek philosophy, including the idea of universal law, and they assimilated. This was one thing that made Rome strong. As they conquered new countries and new peoples, they would decide what, was, what had value and what didn't have value within that culture, and they would assimilate these different ideas within uh, Roman culture. In fact, mo much of what's known as Roman culture, Roman mythology, for example, is nothing but Greek mythology with new names. They just went over and borrowed different things from different cultures and made it part of their own. And that melting pot created a, a strength in the empire. Empire. Furthermore, they granted, uh, they adopted the policy of granting Roman citizenship to non-Romans. So this indeed in, also strengthened uh, the empire and and strengthened the concept that all citizens, all inhabitants, were under one law and in one kingdom. Furthermore, Roman law emphasized the dignity of the individual, especially if that individual were a Roman citizen. They were treated with tremendous respect. So Rome set a cultural, political, and legal framework within which Christianity could come and operate and spread rapidly throughout Western Europe and the Mediterranean world. The second major influence came from Greece. While Rome provided a, an influence that was political, legal, and provided a military peace throughout the area, Greek provided an intellectual culture, an intellectual background. Though the Greeks were conquered politically by Rome, the Greeks were the ones that conquered Rome culturally. So what we know of, or a lot of what we know of as Roman culture, has its roots in the classic development of Greece, especially during their golden age in the 5th century B.C. So Rome looked to Greece for their intellectual heritage have five points on the influence of the Greeks on the fullness of times. First point, by the time of the Greek Empire and Augustus, Koine Greek had become the universal language in the Mediterranean. If we draw a rough map here, use this as a rough picture of the Med. Here's Greece up here, and as Alexander conquered to the east and around the Med down to Egypt and then back towards Persia, he carried with him an army that had assimilated. It had begun up here, and you had various Greek dialects classically. You had Attic Greek, which was the dominant dialect of Greek in Athens. You had uh, Boeotian down here, and uh, you had the Spartans spoke one dialect. You had 
Uh, the Macedonians, uh, from which Alexander came, spoke another dialect. But as he brought his army together and as they conquered and you uh, brought in merchants from various other areas of Greece and all these assimilated together, they had to understand each, each other. Uh, sort of like uh, I think Winston Churchill commented that, that uh, Americans and the English are, are uh, but separated by a common language. And that was sort of the problem with uh, uh, Greece at that time. They were separated by a common language. They were these various dialects, but they had to bring them together. So there was a, an evolution of language so that by the time Alexander conquered, you had a unified language that was taken throughout the eastern part of the Mediterranean that was known as Common Greek, what we call Koine. This is the proper term here, K-O-I-N-E. And it means common it was the language of the people, the language of commerce, the language of the streets, the language of the everyday person. And so this became the lingua franca of the eastern part of the empire and was used as the language of commerce, the language of diplomacy, the language of treaties throughout the world at that time. So language was provided. This Koine Greek then became the language for the New Testament, a common language, language in the are uh, the uh, scriptures could be written in the language of the common man so that everyone could understand what God had for them. The second area of influence from the Greeks is that that goes back to the speculative philosophy of the Greeks. From the pre-Socratics like Thales, Anaximander, and Anaximenes, through Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato. As speculative philosophy developed, it challenged the old mythological assumptions of the, about the gods of Olympus. The polytheistic religions that they had worshipped previously were no longer rationally defensible. So the people began to give up their old uh, religious worship. But philosophy also failed to satisfy the soul of people, failed to provide the answers or to give them hope or to satisfy their spiritual hunger. That led, now this is important to understand, because you see this cycle throughout history. You, you have a, a religious system here that is destroyed by philosophy. But philosophy also fails to provide ultimate answers. The result of that is skepticism. Skepticism says there can be no truth. How do I know there's truth? I can't know. Reason is proved that this is false, and reason can't solve the answers, solve the problems, so there are no answers. How can I have hope? The result of, from skepticism is always mysticism. Now, you see this over and over again in human history. In fact, we're at this cycle right now. We had uh, the dominance of, of Christianity uh, Roman Catholicism in the Middle Ages, which then moved into mysticism. And then there was a reaction, which was known as Protestantism, which returned us to the faith of Scripture, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, by faith alone, by grace alone. And then you had the rise of autonomous philosophy under empiricism and rationalism in the period known as the Enlightenment in the uh, 17th and 18th century, which tried to which attacked Christianity and tried to pull out from under Christianity any rational supports. The response was skepticism, and we all know the roots of skepticism, what that, the impact that had in the 19th century uh, from religious liberalism, that you can't prove Christianity to be true. In fact, it's all myth, and we see a lot of the fruits of that today. And what's the reaction to skepticism? If you can't believe Christianity, there's no hope, and it produces a secular society, but people can't live consistently within a secular society with those beliefs because they need hope. They need to believe there's something greater or grander than what we see and feel and touch. And so they, they leap beyond anything rational into just some sort of subjectivism, subjectivism and mysticism in order to provide some kind of hope. And that's why you have the rise in popularity today of the New Age movement and uh, Hindu religions and Buddhist religions and all of that. So you see how these, these cycles go on throughout uh, human history. And this is, about the, this is the same cycle that took place in the ancient world, and it was just about at this point that you had the Incarnation. Skepticism was dominating Rome. There was already beginning to be a shift into mysticism. That's why the mystery religions were so popular 
and people were, were looking for answers. All of this was set up by the speculative philosophy of the Greeks because they demonstrated that, that the old religions were bankrupt and human reason and empiricism was also bankrupt and couldn't provide ultimate answers. Third point under Greek is that Greek philosophy positively focused on t- attention on a transcendental reality beyond the physical world. So people began to think there's something else out there beyond the physical. It's not just the material world. Fourth, there were various themes in Greek literature and drama which began to focus attention on ethics. You have Aristotle wrote the Nicomachean Ethics, and there were various other uh, philosophers wrote books on ethics and law and speculation about man's eternal future. Is the soul eternal? Is the soul material or immaterial? So there were various themes throughout Greek literature and drama which focused man's attention on these issues but could not provide answers. And then fifth, the Hellenization of the ancient world provided an opportunity for the spread of Christianity out of the womb of Judaism. As the culture became Hellenized, and especially this transitions into the next subject, which is Jews, and Jews began to spread throughout the empire, that provided a womb out of which Christianity could grow. So that brings us to the third major area of influence in terms of the fullness of times, and that is the influence of Judaism. And I have six points under the influence of Judaism. First point, the diaspora. Now, this is a technical term, D-I-S-P-O-R-A, which we could freely translate the dispersion, and it refers to the dis- is a technical term for the scattering of Israel throughout the ancient world as a result of the fifth cycle of discipline, which came on the northern kingdom in 722 B.C. and the southern kingdom in 586 B.C. As a result of that, Jews were taken out of the land and scattered throughout the ancient world, even though there was those that were taken out of Judea in 586 B.C. and went to uh, Babylon and uh, Persia under the Persian Empire. Many returned. Many others didn't. They went to, uh, you had Jewish colonies in Persia, Egypt, uh, Greece, throughout much of the ancient world, all the major cities, there was a Jewish colony of merchants who were responsible for building up the economy and trade and uh, developing banking systems and many things of that nature. In fact, Alexander realized the value of of Jews, and many times he would um, take hire Jews or take Jews from Israel and move them into different portions of his empire and set them up as administrators because of their administrative ability. So that led to a dispersion of Jews throughout the ancient world known as the Diaspora. So Jews lived throughout the Roman Empire, Parthia, which is the old Persian Empire area, North Africa. And as these Jews lived and lived throughout the Med, from, from Rome, Greece, North Africa, Parthia, as they lived in all these areas, they would all come back to Jerusalem for the annual feast or pilgrimage feasts. And there were Jews from all over the ancient world who were back in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in 33 A.D. And so when Peter and the others, the other disciples proclaimed the gospel during that feast day on the day of Pentecost and they heard the rushing of wind and the initial coming of the Holy Spirit which marked the birth of the church and they were all filled and dwelt and baptized with the Holy Spirit there uh, on the day of Pentecost, that when they left and returned home to Parthia, to India, to North Africa, to Greece, to Italy, wherever it was that they were from, when they went home, they took the gospel with them. So that was a tremendous opportunity. Secondly, wherever there were ten or more adult Jews, they built a synagogue. So there were synagogues throughout Cappadocia, uh, Ionia, all these different uh, areas in uh, in. Asia Minor. So later when Paul is carrying the gospel, he goes to a place like Iconium or Derby or Lystra and he goes to the synagogue and he goes, sits down and he gives the gospel to the Jews in that synagogue. And if they rejected it, then he would go to the Gentiles. But he always had a place to go, a starting point at a synagogue. So that provided a, a, um, a area of common ground, so to speak, a starting point 
for the communication of the gospel in a, in a Gentile culture. Third point is that wherever Jews went, wherever Jews lived, they spread the notion of monotheism, the idea that there was only one God. And throughout the ancient world at that time, most, most cultures had a polytheistic religion, that is, many gods. Jews spread the idea of monotheism. Fourth, Jews spread the idea that there was, there was an ethical system that was based on moral absolutes, an ethical system that was based on moral absolutes, not just on relativism. Fifth, they had carried with them the idea of a messianic hope. They understood the principles of sin, that man was inherently evil, not inherently good, and that the ultimate solution would come in the form of a Messiah. So they carried the Messianic hope doctrine with them. And then sixth, the Jews made it possible for there to be a philosophy of history. Now, when you grew up in school, if you studied history, you were always told that a Greek by the name of Herodotus was the father of history. And that's just false. Because the trouble is that secular scholars ignore the Bible and they don't treat it seriously. Herodotus was not the father of history. Herodotus lived roughly 5th century B.C. in Greece. He was predated by Moses. Moses lived a thousand years before Herodotus, and he was writing history that we have in the Pentateuch. But real history is not just a chronicle of events. Unfortunately, that's what most of us were exposed to in school. History teaches you what all of those events mean, taking, taking all of the data of historical events and then wrapping them up in an interpretive framework. That's what real history is, having something to interpret all the events of history. And the Jews had that. and made it possible to have a philosophy of history because they knew that history had meaning, direction, and purpose. And if you don't understand what the meaning of history is, then you're going to misinterpret the events of history. If you don't understand that it has a direction. See, for the, Jew, for the Greeks, history was just an endless cycle. But for Jews, it has direction. It's moving to a final goal, and it has purpose and reason. So in summary, the Roman military and judicial system provided a peace throughout the Med that made it possible for the spread of the gospel. Hellenistic culture and Greek speculative, speculative philosophy set the stage intellectually for the spread of the gospel, and the Jewish dispersion, dispersion spread many different fundamental ideas which, uh, as it were, planted the seed for the receptivity later of the gospel. So back to verse 4. But when the fullness of the time came... Jesus Christ controls history, and God provided a unique historical environment for the Incarnation. God sent forth His Son, the doctrine of the Incarnation. God the Father intended to intentionally, because He had planned it from eternity past. When the time came, it wasn't just by accident that Mary and Joseph were there. God just didn't say, okay, well now it looks like a good time, let's do this. God had planned this from eternity past. He worked in human history to bring all these factors together. And it was time for the incarnation. Furthermore, it was also a time when, when from, from Adam, from Adam up to the incarnation, almost every religious concept had been tried and failed. So by the time the cross comes, see, there's a method there. And that method is to give, get, God gave man the opportunity to try out his own methods. They all failed. Now, there are a lot of religious systems that were developed after the cross. Most of the ones we know of today were developed after the cross, but they're just a rehash of old ideas that have been around for centuries and centuries before the cross. So God gave man an opportunity to uh, test all of his ideas and to see how bankrupt they were, and then he provides the ultimate solution. So God sent forth his son. The verb there is the aorist active indicative of apostello, which indicates sending on a mission. There is a planning and purpose behind the, the um, uh, incarnation. God has a purpose, a specific mission for Jesus Christ. He came to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. 
He didn't come to heal people. He didn't come to perform good works. He didn't come to pat people on the back and tell them how wonderful they were. He didn't come to tell people how wonderful children were. You know, it's funny. Everybody wants to emphasize one of these ideas or another about Christ. While he accomplished healing, he did not heal everyone, and he healed people only for the purpose of establishing his credentials, that he was the Messiah. The prophecy in the Old Testament was that the Messiah would come to heal people of their sins. And so to show that he could do that, he healed people physically from their diseases, but he did not heal everyone. But he did that as his, uh, to establish his credentials. His purpose was redemptive, to go to the cross and to pay the sin penalty. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, the doctrine of the incarnation, virgin conception. Why the virgin conception? Because the sin nature is inherited through the man. So by virgin conception, when God the Holy Spirit uh, fertilized the ovum in Mary, made possible the conception of the, the physical life of the unique Son of God from a human mother and a divine father so that he is born physically alive and spiritually alive without a sin nature and without the taint of sin. He is born, furthermore, the text says, he is born under the law. So he is born under the law, under the Mosaic law, so that he can, from within the framework of the law, fulfill the law and end the law. Romans chapter 10 says that Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. Now, the purpose for the incarnation, verse 4, the subject of verse 4 is the incarnation of Christ. Verse 5 is the redemptive work of Christ. In order that, purpose clause, in order that he might redeem. Now, the reason you have a might there is not that there was a chance that he might not redeem. This is a, a verb in the subjunctive. Remember, the verb in the subjunctive is always emphasizes possibility. But whenever in Greek you have a purpose clause, which is indicated by hina, H-I-N-A, which is your uh, particle of purpose, Hina clause always takes a subjunctive verb in order to express purpose. So that's the whole clause has to be taken into account here that the purpose for his incarnation was redemption. Now this is something we have to stop and spend a little time talking about. The Greek word that's used here is ex agorazo. Looks like this in the Greek. The E X A G A R X O Z O. It's a compound word. The the agora was the marketplace. X means out from or out of, and so literally. It means out of the marketplace. And so the word came to mean to purchase something out of the marketplace. And theologically, it means to purchase sinners out of the slave market of sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Ephesians 2.1 says that we're all born dead in our trespasses and sins. So we are all born, every member of the human race is born in the slave market of sin. The only way that we get our freedom is if someone from outside pays the price. This is the meaning of redemption. It means to make a payment, to pay a price, to purchase something out of the marketplace. And Jesus Christ goes to the cross, and there he pays the price. He performs a work called redemption, which is uh, has the idea of purchasing to set free. He pays the price. Another word that is used for the, in the Greek that is translated redemption is the word uh, antilutron. Looks like this in the Greek. A-N-T-I-L-U-T-R-O-N. And this also has the idea of purchase from a marketplace, but it has a further idea of 
of substituting money for something, paying a ransom price. So when you link these two ideas together, the one thing they have in common, ex agorazo and antilutron, is the payment of a price. I'm laboring the point here because it's very crucial for us to understand that a price has been paid. Once that price is paid, then the person is free. It's up to each person's volition at that point to accept the payment price. If Christ paid the penalty for all human sin, then it's paid for and nothing anyone can do, there's nothing anyone can do to add to that payment. Whether you are a believer or an unbeliever, the purchase price has been paid for every single sin in human history. So the issue, therefore, is no longer sin. This is the mistake that almost every evangelist made, and they, they get up and they talk about how, how much sin you've committed and the problem is your sin. You have to understand how you, we have to understand that sin's the problem, but sin is not the issue. Sin is the problem that separates us from God the Father, but sin is not the issue in salvation. The issue in salvation is the cross. The issue in salvation is faith alone in Christ alone. The issue in salvation is not how much sin we've committed and how sorry we are about that sin. The issue in salvation is what Jesus Christ did and not what we do or how we feel about it because the price has been paid. So point number one under the doctrine of redemption is that the meaning of redemption is to pay a price to purchase from the slave market to set free. Point number two in defining redemption, the definition reads, the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross, whereby all humanity is bought from the slave market of sin in which they were born spiritually dead and delivered to the freedom of grace. Redemption is realized or applied when a person is born again by faith alone in Christ alone. See, even though the unbeliever is born in the slave market of sin, historically speaking, Christ died and they are, their shackles have been loosened. They can step out of them. The issue is not sin anymore. The issue is whether or not they accept the payment. But they are still minus R. Sin's paid for, but because they're minus R, all they can produce in their life is minus R. All their good works have no value. No matter how good they are, no matter how wonderful they are, no matter how many altruistic deeds they perform in their life, no matter how generous they are, it all adds up to minus R. It never adds up to the perfect righteousness of Christ. So, at the great white throne judgment, when all, believers, when all unbelievers are evaluated, God will add up all of their good works, and when he adds it all up, it will still amount to minus R, and the standard is plus R, and so they will be condemned to eternity in the lake of fire. What does John 3.18 say? He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. It doesn't say because he's a sinner. It says because he hasn't believed. Why? Sin was taken care of at the cross. But failure to believe in Christ, see, at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, God the Father imputes to the, to the believer, to the new believer, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and, and declares them to be justified. If you do not believe in Christ, there's no imputation, there's no justification, and so you are condemned already because you have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the issue is the saving work of Christ on the cross, faith alone in Christ alone, not Sin. Point number three, Christ is the only qualified redeemer. He is qualified, number one, because of the virgin conception and birth. He does not have a sin nature. He is not, does not have the imputation of Adam's original sin. Secondly, he is qualified by his life because he never committed a sin. That's the doctrine of the impeccability of Jesus Christ. At no point in his life, though he was tempted in all areas as we are, yet without sin. Isaiah 53.9, John 8.46, Hebrews 4.15, 
and 728. All of this, or 726 through 28, all of this emphasizes the impeccability of Jesus Christ, that he who knew no sin was made sin for us that we might be the right that we might be the righteousness of God in him. Point number four. This is redemption is one aspect of God's solution to sin. Here we have to review a very important concept and that is the barrier that exists between God and man. Man was here. God man had perfect relationship with God in the Garden of Eden. But the instant that Adam sinned, a barrier was erected between himself and God. And if we analyze the Scriptures, we can extrapolate from the Scriptures six consequences from that act that separated man from God. The first is sin itself. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 and Isaiah 64.6 says that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Second category is the penalty of sin. Penalty of sin, Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the penalty is spiritual death. Ephesians 2.1, We were all born dead in our trespasses and sins. Then you have the problem of physical birth. Physical birth, we are born spiritually dead. There's the penalty of spiritual death, which is separation from God, and we are born spiritually dead with a sin nature separated from God. Fourth brick in the barrier is relative righteousness. That means that we are born minus R. No matter how good we are, we can never come up to the righteousness which God demands. Fifth, we have the problem of the character of God. Man's problem is he's minus R. God's problem is that he is plus R. And what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God must supply. The issue is not how can a loving God send his creatures to hell. The issue is how can a perfectly righteous God let anyone into heaven that does not meet his absolute standard. Somehow he's got to solve that problem. And finally, the sixth brick in the barrier is our position in Adam. In Adam all die, 1 Corinthians 15:22. Well, I'm not going to go through the solution to every brick in the barrier, but the solution to the first brick, which is sin, is the doctrine under consideration right now, which is redemption. The payment for sin has been made. Ephesians 1:7. In 1 Peter 1, 18-19, Ephesians 1, 7 reads, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the basis for forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. 1 Peter 1, 18-19 says that we have not been redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold from our empty manner of life, but with the precious blood as of a lamb without spot or blemish. So we have been purchased by the Lamb of God, through His death on the cross. In the Old Testament, point number five, in the Old Testament, this was symbolized through a blood sacrifice. The blood represented the physical death of the animal. The physical death of the animal, in turn, was a type or portrayal of the death of Christ on the cross. But remember, the penalty for sin is spiritual death. So the death that Christ died on the cross had to be in kind. Physical death doesn't pay the penalty for spiritual death, cannot substitute for spiritual death. So spiritual death had to pay the price for spiritual death. And Jesus Christ was separated from God the Father for three hours on the cross where he bore in his body the payment for our sins. And so we talk about that as the spiritual substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. His death was a substitute for us, and it was spiritual. Before he died physically, the payment for our sin was complete. The last thing he said before he died physically was, Tetelestai, it is finished. 
It has been completed once and for all. So animal blood was the means of teaching or portraying the doctrine of redemption in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 12, verses 7 and 12, and Hebrews 9:22. In the New Testament, under the completed doctrine of soteriology, it is the blood of Christ, which because the blood, the physical blood represents spiritual death. The blood is simply a type, a representative of what took place, a physical representation of what took place in the spiritual realm. The physical plasma and hemoglobin of the blood of Christ doesn't do anything. In fact, he bled very little. That was the purpose in a crucifixion, was to keep the person alive as long as possible. Ultimately, they would die a death of suffocation. As they hung there and, and gradually would, would lose their strength to pull themselves up, and in the position in, in which they hang, their, their uh, intestines were pushed up against their diaphragm, and as they grew weaker and weaker over the course of two or three days, it would get to the point where they could no longer pull themselves up, and the pressure would prevent against their diaphragm would prevent them from breathing so that they would virtually suffocate on the cross. And, the, and it was a standard to try to keep a, a victim of crucifixion alive for as long as possible. Two or three days would be best to make sure they truly suffered for their crime. But Jesus bled very little, as is indicated by the observation of the Apostle John, that after the Roman soldier stuck his spear in his side, he saw blood and water come out, which is a separation of the, of the red corpuscles from the lymph in the blood into what would appear to be the untrained eye to be blood and water, and that only takes place after death. So there was very little bleeding on the cross. In fact, the, the technique was designed to keep a person from bleeding so they would not bleed to death on the cross, but would hang there for two or three days. So the blood of Christ is the ransom payment, the ransom or purchase price of redemption, Ephesians 1.7 and Colossians 1.14. Now, there's a slight problem that's developing today, and I'm just going to touch on this because I don't, if you hear this, I want you to be forewarned that if you look at a passage like Ephesians 1.7, which reads, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So here you have a phrase, redemption through His blood, comma, the forgiveness. Now, it looks as if the forgiveness of sin is appositional to redemption. You have the similar construction in Colossians 1.14, which reads, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And it looks as if the writer is equating redemption with forgiveness. Now, this has led some people to say that at the point of redemption on the cross, all of your sins were at that point forgiven, so you no longer need to confess your sins. Then why do we have a verse like 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In any phrase that is appositional, the first sentence or the first word or the first phrase is explained by the second phrase so that in some sense the second phrase is going to be synonymous. Let me give you an example from another passage. I think this is in Acts 2.42. In Acts 2.42, it says that the early believers devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles and fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. Now, the untrained eye looks as if four things are listed in Acts 2.42. Teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, which is the Lord's table, and prayer. But the second two are appositional to the second one. So the fellowship is defined, is further explained as the Lord's table and prayer. Now, what's going on in the Lord's table and prayer? We are having fellowship with God in prayer and at the Lord's table. Not fellowship with man. See, the first thing that people always go to when they see this word fellowship is that it's fellowship with other believers. We always have to make a distinction between social interaction between believers and fellowship. Fellowship in the Bible, when it talks about horizontal fellowship between believers, Christ is always the center point. Bible doctrine is always the focus. So if you get together with another believer 
and you're both in fellowship and you're having coffee down here at some restaurant and you're talking about some business deal, that's not fellowship. If you're having coffee with another believer and you're sitting there with the Bible open and you're discussing Scripture and application of Scripture, that's when you're moving into fellowship, biblical fellowship. Because biblical fellowship starts with fellowship with God and that's the critical feature in what's going on horizontally between two human beings. Okay? That's the difference. But in terms, we're getting away from our subject. The subject is apposition. The Lord's table and prayer give two examples. They're synonymous with the word fellowship. And you can see that from a definition of the terms and understanding the concepts. But forgiveness, if you understand that, it's a relational concept between two people. Now, this is very important to understand because it has something to do with a lot of questions people are raising today in light of this whole national calamity with the president. You'll always hear somebody say, well, we ought to forgive him. Well, that's true. But forgiveness is a personal relational concept. Forgiveness is not a legal concept, folks. You will not ever go into a court of law and hear any lawyer or any judge talk about forgiveness. It's a personal relational matter. It is not a legal concept. First of all, in the law, you have categories known as pardon or clemency. And that applies to someone who has first been found guilty. See, the law is very precise. Redemption has to do with paying a price. Forgiveness doesn't have anything to do with paying a price. Forgiveness has to do with the relationship between two people. In this case, between God and man. That is the application or the result from paying a price. But it's not the same thing as paying a price. So just by looking at the definition of the two terms, you can say that this is not appositional even though one contemporary grammar has invented a new category called the accusative of apposition. It's the only, I've looked through about ten grammars. It's the only grammar that even develops that category, and I think it's a wrong category because just based on the definition of the terms. They are not synonymous in any way, shape, or form. The best way to understand this is, is in the sense of ellipsis that redemption is the basis for forgiveness. In whom we have for redemption the basis for the forgiveness of sins. So this does not mean that you are forgiven at the cross. It means that the price is paid at the cross and all pre-salvation sins are cleansed at the moment we have faith alone in Christ alone. Post-salvation sins are taken care of each time we confess our sins. We are forgiven on the basis of what took place at the cross. Because Christ died for our sins. That's why 1 John 1, 7 states the general principle that the blood of Christ continually, it's a present tense, so it's continual action, continually cleanses us from all sin. And 1 John 1, 9 states the specific mechanic for how that takes place, and that is through admission and confession of sin to God the Father and the privacy of our priesthood. So that's the thrust of those two verses Ephesians 1.7 and Colossians 1.14. Point number, let me see, where are we now? Point number six was the blood of Christ was the ransom money or purchase price of redemption. Point number seven, the soul of the believer is redeemed in salvation. Job 19.25-26. Uh, the soul of the believer is redeemed. The payment, the price is paid. Point number eight. Condemnation by the Mosaic Law. See, we're condemned by the law. The law shows that all have sinned. So condemnation is paid. It is condemnation under the Mosaic Law and redemption solves the problem. Condemnation is not on the basis of sin. So what are the results of redemption? The results of redemption are, first of all, the forgiveness of sins. We've already studied that, so I can move on. It's the basis for justification. Because the price has been paid, we can then trust Christ because He died as our substitute in our place. And as a result of that payment, uh, accepting that payment, the, there's the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and then we are declared to be righteous. All that happens simultaneously. So we have 
faith alone and Christ alone, as then there is the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and then we are declared righteous. And that's known as justification. Third, it's the basis for sanctification. Now that we are positionally sanctified because we are in Christ, we can then grow and mature as believers in experiential sanctification. It's the basis for forgiveness of sins, the basis for justification, Romans 3.24, the basis for sanctification, Ephesians 5.25, and the basis for our eternal inheritance, Hebrews 9.15, and our passage here, Galatians 4. Seven. Okay, and finally, redemption is related to the mediatorship of Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6. There is only one God and one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. So redemption is accomplished by a mediator who took, could partake in human nature and divine nature. He was undiminished deity and true humanity united together in one person and thus he was the qualified mediator, the go-between, who could pay the penalty for man and satisfy the righteousness of Christ. So verse 4 says, When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, for the purpose that he might redeem those who were under the law, that is Jews here to keep the context, but it applies to all mankind, that we might receive, and remember whenever Paul says we, that first person plural, he's talking about Jews, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So that indicates once again the ending of the law in the life of Israel. And then verse 6, the sign of adoption. And because you are sons, that is we, us, adult sons, that's by virtue of adoption, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The sending forth of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, is unique in this age, and this is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in every single believer. Now, there is a distinction between the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Filling of the Holy Spirit is temporary, and it is for power in the spiritual life. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit is related, it's not the same as, but it's related to the sealing of the Spirit and is a sign of our sonship that God the Holy Spirit indwells every single believer in this age. Now, in the Old Testament, He never indwelt, any, indwelt anyone. There was uh, the endowment of the Holy Spirit for power. He came upon various Old Testament uh, leaders for the purpose of giving them leadership skills for uh, the nation Israel, but it was not for related to living the spiritual life. It is a sign of our sonship in the New Testament, which shows that the church age believer is unique in all of human history. And he cries out to the Father, Abba, Father. Abba is Av. Here it is in Hebrew. Uh, Ab is the word for Father. Abba, it's the same in Aramaic. Abba is the diminutive. It's a very close, intimate term, which we might translate daddy. It's a very close term of affection to the Father. So it shows the intimate relationship the church-age believer can have with the Father because he is a priest, a royal priest unto God, and has a unique family relationship in all, and, and is quite different from that of the Old Testament. And then the conclusion in verse 7. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son, a huios, the adult son, fully adopted into the family of God, and if a son, then an heir through God. And heirship is another very important doctrine which we need to cover. We will just introduce it next time, but we need to get into this doctrine of inheritance and heirship. It has to do with, with possession. That's the root meaning of inheritance and heirship is possession. What is it that we possess through God and is all inheritance the same? Are there distinctions in inheritance? And we'll begin next time with the doctrine of inheritance or an introduction to the doctrine of inheritance and then we'll move on into verses 8 through 11 which show demonism as a hindrance to grace in human history. With our heads bowed, and our eyes closed.
Father, we thank You for the opportunity to look at these fantastic doctrines this morning and to relate the doctrine of adoption to the doctrine of redemption, to understand how Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins, that there's nothing left undone. He paid the price in full. We cannot add to that. We must accept it. He did all of the work. We do none of the work. That is grace. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is not sure of their salvation, that they would take the opportunity right now to say, Father, I accept this payment on my behalf. That's all that's needed. No works, no effort, nothing, nothing emotional, no joining the church, no good deeds, just simply faith alone in Christ alone. Now, Father, we thank you for this time and ask that you would help us to remember these things and to understand them as we meditate on them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.